Hello, it's Tony Hart with another true story from my podcast, Love from New York. This story is called, I Was a Ford Model. Really? No, really. I was a Ford model. I love being able to say that. I don't really make a statement out of it. I just sort of let it slip. I toss it out there, casually. My friends don't know how to react. They look at me like, is that even a remote possibility? Then they summon up their courage and say things like, ah, a Ford model? Even my friends, my programming friends, my C++ friends, know what a Ford model is. Okay, I wasn't a famous face. I never made the cover of Vogue. But I was a Ford model. Yes, I was. I came to New York in the 1960s, just in time for the sexual revolution. I had the goods. First of all, I was a natural blonde. You'd think nobody in New York City had ever seen a natural blonde before. Japanese men would stop me on the street touch my hair and say, is real? Second of all, I had boobs. I had blonde hair and boobs, and that was all I needed. In New York City, if you have blonde hair and boobs, your head could be on backwards, and men don't care. They don't even notice. Here's the deal. The sexual revolution was a con. A giant con. The city boys who made it up used phrases like sexual liberation and free love. And what they really meant was let's grow around like barnyard dogs. Gosh, guys. I don't think so. So here I was in New York City, and I enrolled in graduate school at Columbia University because I like my brain. I wanted to be a writer, a sort of cultural political writer, and I thought a degree in political science was a good place to start. I was all settled in with my books and my terribly serious classes, when out of the blue, Eileen Ford came into my life. I had a distant cousin who ran an advertising agency. He used Eileen's girls in his ads, so Eileen had no choice but to take a look at me when he asked. The poor woman was stuck. 
I thought, do I really want to do this? I mean, a modeling agency? Okay, I'll go. I know nothing is going to happen here, so I don't dress up. I don't wear makeup. I'm a sloppy grad student. That's what I am, and it's fine with me. But I am a little curious. So I show up on the appointed day at the appointed time. It's a crummy little building under the 59th Street Bridge. Crummy building, not inspiring, don't much want to go in. But I made it to 58th Street. I can make it up a flight of stairs. When I opened the door into the Ford offices, whoa, this was action. Dozens of girls on phones making appointments and on the walls. Yowza! Photos of every face I have ever seen on the cover of Vogue. Dazzling. And then this little woman comes out of her office and asks me to come in. She introduces herself, Eileen Ford, and the tall, dark, and handsome man behind her is her husband, Jerry. Eileen talks like she's had a little too much coffee, and she shoots questions at me. What do I do? I go to school at Columbia University, and her face lights up. Turns out she's out of Barnard. Where am I from, and what kind of background do I have? I'm from Minnesota and Iowa, and I'm Norwegian. Her face lights up even more. It turns out she's fond of Scandinavians. She's looking for fresh faces, and she wants the all-American look. I have to drop some weight and think about fixing my nose, and I need to wear makeup, a lot of makeup. And when a photographer wants to see new models, one of the bookers will call me. And then she leads me out of her inner sanctum and closes the door, interview done. I stand there. What just happened? I walked out of the busy office in the crummy building in shock. Me, a model? Come on. I'm from Iowa. I wear blue jeans, and I like to run around barefoot. I like to eat. I, I have the appetite of a farmer. I love food, and it shows. I'm no stick insect. I used to go down to the cigar store in my little Iowa hometown and look at the big, glossy fashion magazines with the gorgeous models in their fabulous clothes. And I knew those women hadn't had a biscuit with gravy in 10 years. I mean, me? Really? This Eileen person thinks I could lose a couple of pounds and look like that? I'd have to wire my mouth shut and stop drinking. I have one drink. All chocolate is mine. 
Oh, well, I suppose I could try. I mean, I would kind of like to wear those clothes and maybe get my picture taken. I thought it over on my way home. Could I really do this? And do you know what my answer was? Hell yes. So, I started on the diet. Tuna fish and lettuce, no pizza, no Coke, no ice cream, chicken with no skin, no butter. Oh, Lord. I'm the kind of person I can tell I'm sick when I'm not hungry. But I try. I survive week one. Three pounds gone. Huh. Maybe this is doable. On to week two. This week is harder. Maybe some yogurt, fat-free, of course. Maybe some cottage cheese, fat-free. Is there such a thing as fat-free chocolate? Two pounds off this week, but it's getting tougher. I can stay on the phone longer than I can stay on a diet. I'll go on to week three. That's when I discover the right way to diet. If it tastes good, spit it out. Only one pound this week. Oh, it's hopeless. I think I'll give up. And then the phone rings. Hi, Tony. How's the diet going? Got a pencil? Here it is. Tomorrow, 9 o'clock. 1383 Broadway at 38th Street, room 1110. It's called Beautiful Brides. They need to size you for a magazine shoot. I show up. A lady takes me into a fitting room and tells me to take off my bra. She says, good. I'm standing there with my boobs hanging out. No modesty in this business. She wheels in a rack of dresses. I put one on, strapless. Oh, now I get it. She stuffs sanitary napkins under my tits to make them really pop. She stands back, nods, and says, Be back tomorrow at nine, strapless bra. These people do not speak in complete sentences. But hey, I got a job. The thing about wedding dresses is they know you're only going to wear it once. All it has to do is look good. It doesn't have to last. They can put the dress together with Elmer's glue all. So they stuff me into a white tulle wedding dress. This is polyester tulle. And it's supposed to make a bride look all dreamy and romantic. But this tool is dirt cheap, and it's scratchy. It's like the stuff ballerinas wear, so their tutus stick straight out. And here I am in a dress that only fits my boobs. Nothing else fits anywhere. So when they finally got me all lined up for the shoot, I can't move because they've got so many pins in the dress, trying to make it look like it fits, one sneeze and I will stab myself to death.
but I didn't care. I was getting paid. It turns out that the thing was, with my corn-fed look, I was a natural for the low-hanging fruit of the modeling world, the low-rent shots where you actually made money. Modeling is so weird. You do low-rent stuff, brides' magazines, hairdo magazines, catalog showrooms. You get paid. You do hotsy-totsy stuff, the big shiny fashion magazines. You don't get paid. What the hell is that? But it's the big stuff that can make you the face of an ad campaign. And then you take the money home in a wheelbarrow. So I brought Eileen in a couple of bucks and it started. The brokers, go see, go see, go see. I'd show up, smile. The photographer might take a snapshot. I'd leave. A couple of the photographers called me back for tests. They'd take a couple of shots, mention a campaign, and let me know I will get the job if I sleep with them. No, no, no. There was no way I could make it into the modeling big leagues because I was not a whore. Oh, yes. To make it in modeling in those days, you had to sleep with everyone. And I mean everyone. You practically had to walk down the street with your legs open. Well, I'm too snotty for that. Next, go see. Test shot for a hairdo magazine at a photographer's humongous apartment on the west side. Horny guy, but he guessed I wasn't putting out, and he didn't have anything to bribe me with. I mean, a hairdo magazine? Really? The stylist messes with my hair with the kind of hairspray that could double for mosquito repellent, and in the haze... I see her, the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. She lived in the building, and she came down to get something, definitely not a cup of sugar. And here she was, this exquisite creature, and I just stared. That was when I knew my modeling days were done. I could never look like that. Okay, that's it. I'm going back to school. School is getting kind of interesting anyway. There was this anti-war movement going on or something. Oh, my God. A genuine supermodel. Her name was Carmen. Carmen Del Rey Fiche. That's how the photographer said it. Carmen Delray Fiche. Seeing a woman like that in person is a shock. Carmen was six feet tall, with hair like a 
spun silver halo, sculpted cheekbones, a classic aquiline nose, skin fairly dripping with dew, and she moved like a swan. Her head held high on her long neck. She turned her head to look at me, and the light hit all the right angles. She was an Avedon model. She was a goddess. I knew it was the end for me right there. I went home, fully reconciled to my graduate student doom, poured a glass of beer, got a phone call. Tony, congratulations, the booker cried. Here's a real one, a Harper's Bazaar cover photographer. Eileen is getting serious with you. This is the guy who discovered Lauren Hutton. He made them use her when they didn't want to. Oh, good luck. And I went to meet the man who broke my heart. Bill lived and worked in an old brownstone in the East Twenties off Lexington Avenue. I went up the stairs. Bill said, hello, when he saw me. Have a seat. There were four or five girls ahead of me, sitting in chairs or waiting at a big table near the back of the room. It was a typical cattle call. A photographer lets Ford know he wants to see new girls. The agency sends six or seven. We show the photographer our book, which is our portfolio of pictures. If the photographer likes the looks of someone, he schedules a test shoot to see if she photographs well. That's the routine. I couldn't really see what Bill looked like. He was sitting behind a desk checking out a girl's book. But there was no way to miss this man's hair. On top of his head, lay a mass of curls, so wild. It looked like it had a life of its own. This was rock star hair, totally untamed, anarchy on a human head. I liked him already. The place was a giant, airy loft full of light. What furniture there was made it look like a beach house. Wicker chairs, Japanese paper lanterns, a big square coffee table that invited you to put your feet up. It was comfy. I took a seat at the table that was heaped with magazines, photos, slides, a mess really, but a happy mess. The magazines were British Harper's Bazaar, Italian Vogue, French L. This guy was my first real fashion photographer. But the run-in with the exquisite Carmen had given me a clear idea, not only of what I was up against, but what it took to make it big. Carmen Del Rey Fiche had been my reality check. Modeling wasn't something that you did on a day off from school. Modeling was big money and big competition, and your whole life 
was your look. I couldn't do that, and I knew it. I did not want to spend my life on my face. But a call to meet a photographer whose work was covers on Harper's Bazaar, I couldn't turn it down. It would be my last hurrah, my goodbye to a world I did not belong in. I was grateful for Carmen's lesson. The magazines on the table grabbed my attention. They were Bill's covers. They had to be. Most of them were European. Bill must have done a stint in Europe and probably had gotten his start there. The Harper's covers on Bill's table were outrageous. I had never seen covers like this before. I was used to a style that was upper class. The haughty blonde that looked like she could freeze you to death with a glance. Bill's covers were like rock posters, big and bold with riotous colors, neon green, magenta, turquoise, lemon yellow. The models looked like psychedelic goddesses. They were shot against backgrounds with race cars or spaceships or mountains. These shots were exciting and sexy as hell. Waiting for him to finish his interviews took a while, so I checked out what else was on this table. Lots of photos of parties with pretty people in very little clothing, on beaches in pools. And there was one photo of Bill climbing out of a swimming pool. Naked. Very nice body. Very well hung. An advertisement for himself. Hello. I looked up. Bill was smiling at me. He had walked over to the table without my hearing him. I guess you like my work, he laughed. Come over to the desk. Let's talk. I followed this Italian male, maybe six feet tall, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt that hugged his body. And as he walked, his curly mass of hair with tendrils that shot off in all directions bounced along. Bill was adorable. So what do you think of my work, he asked as he sat down. It's surrealism, isn't it, I asked. Well, he chuckled, somebody stayed awake in art history class. I didn't think fashion magazines had photos like this. Bill looked directly at me and said, They didn't, until I came along. This guy was so funny and so cute. He was even a little goofy. I knew that he had women crawling all over him. He must come home with a new flavor every night. So, give me your book. I handed over the paltry folder of photos I had managed to get from test shots. You need better pictures than this. He handed my book back to me. 
will set up tests. Thank you. I was thrilled. I got up to leave. Do you want to stay for a drink? Bill asked. I need a drink, and I don't like to drink alone. Suddenly, the goofy Bill disappeared. He was darker now, and he seemed a little sad. Okay, I told him. He brought over two wine glasses and a large bottle of red, poured, handed me my glass, and sat in a slump. Drink up, he said, and he did just that. And then he got lost. I don't know where he went, but he wasn't with me anymore. It was his wine, it was his space. When he came around, he said, My mother just died. I can still hear his voice. My mother just died. I don't know what to do. And so Bill and I did nothing for the rest of the day and into the night. Bill talked if he felt like saying something. I offered a word or two to keep him going. And so it went. About nine or ten o'clock, he said, I need to eat. We got into his jet-black Porsche and sliced through the night to Chinatown. And there I was, the blonde in the jet-black Porsche, next to the Harper's Bazaar photographer, the Iowa dream, straight out of that little cigar store on the corner. His favorite Chinese restaurant was on a crooked little street down a flight of stairs. Everybody who worked there knew Bill. They all greeted him as we came through the door. They set the table and started to bring out his favorite dishes. They loved Bill. I was thinking that I could, too. I don't remember when we had sex for the first time. Sex with Bill was so easy. It wasn't a performance. It wasn't an event. It was just a horizontal expression of how much we liked being together. Sometimes a man and a woman are in implicit agreement about what sex is. Sometimes it just works. It's comfortable. It's nice. Why is it so hard for sex to be so easy? It went on like that for weeks and weeks. I went over every few days. Bill showed me photos he had taken and told me stories. He took several test shots of me, but they weren't good enough for him. He would try again. I saw some of the shots he took. I've never looked so good in my life, and I never will again. Bill's camera had transformed me. I wasn't a kid from Iowa anymore. 
I was a woman with wit in my eyes and a laugh on my lips. I was a goddess. I was Carmen. Bill wouldn't let me keep the shots from my book. Only when he thought they were good enough, he said. And then one day, Bill terrified me. I can't even remember what he said. What I thought he said was that a friend of his was coming over that night. Somehow, the way he said it was so hard and cold. It was like a demand or an order. At the time, I thought what he was telling me was that he wanted me to have sex with both of them. I thought it was a setup. It set off every fear alarm in me. I left and I didn't go back. Now that I think about it, my interpretation was wrong. All he said was this guy was coming over. Why I felt such fear, I will never know. But when I wrote this story, I wanted to find out what happened to Bill. So I did the research. I found a nightmare. That little bit of negativity I saw in Bill that scared me away, that negativity took over his whole life. Bill became a recluse living alone way out in the country in an old barn. No heat, no running water. His food brought to him by charities. It broke my heart. 